If you would open your Bibles to the book of Matthew, Matthew 3. Two Wednesday nights ago, I was greatly embarrassed because my phone went off because I hadn't silenced it. So if you don't want to be embarrassed, silence your phone. <laughs> let's, uh, let's pray. Father, as always, we are very, very thankful to you for many, many things. Father, we are grateful that we can gather together as believers. Father, we truly enjoy the great freedom that we have to be able to make this a routine and part of our, our lives on a regular basis. And we thank you. We pray, O Lord, that we'll never take this for granted, that we'll never take any of this lightly. And Father, as we gather here to worship you, we come because of who you are. We seek to honor you. Lord, we, we bring our tithes and offerings so that your work here may be supported and abroad as well. And we ask for your blessing on the offering. Uh, we, we come singing songs uh, to you and about you and to each other to remind ourselves, Lord, of your grace and kindness and goodness, the truth of the word of God. We, we confess our sins. We think about our sins. We seek to repent of our sins. We spend time in, in, in prayer not only for ourselves, but for others. And then in particular, Father, as we bow before you now, we are asking for your blessing and your help as we focus solely on your word. We pray, O oh Lord, that your spirit would use your word to continue to form us into the image of your son, Christ. That we help to make our minds strong, our faith strong, that we be encouraged, Father, so we thank you again for this great gift you've given us. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew 3, beginning in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So Jesus comes to be baptized by John the Baptizer. Now, just so you know, if you think about this in the context of the period of time in which they lived, Jesus lived and John the Baptizer lived, immersion was a very common Jewish practice long before it became a, a church ordinance. And that's important because if you think about it, if you don't know the background, you know, you, you're reading the story and basically what you have is this. You have a wild man who wears strange garments, eats bugs, and is dunking people in the water saying they should repent. And hundreds of people are coming out to see this and to get baptized. You should be asking yourself, what in the world? What is going on with these people? 
So we're going to hear this, this guy out there just, what, I don't know what he's doing. He's talking about re- repenting and he's baptized and he's just, he's this wild guy. What's, what, why, why is all this happening? And then Jesus shows up and Jesus wants this guy to baptize him. Well, again, a very religious society and culture. They really were steeped in the Old Testament as well as religious tradition, which actually sometimes led them away from what the scripture said. When they would baptize, they, they would have baptismal rituals for all kinds of things. Many, many families who had a home also had their own mikvah, which is where you would do baptisms at home, uh, uh, your own private mikvah. Uh, most of the rituals had to do with purification from ceremonial uncleanness. The Old Testament speaks of washing or bathing for the purpose of purification, and you'll find that in Leviticus 11 and Leviticus 14 and so on. Immersion was mandatory for those who converted to Judaism. And what was important about that was with the required immersion was added the element of identification. And that's really an important aspect of baptism. That's why, in fact, that's why we have what we call, we call it believer's baptism, but you also might call it Christian baptism. And the reason why we say Christian is because there are other religions that do baptisms. We're not the only one that does that. So we have to, there has to be a distinction as to what's going on. What is interesting is in the Greek word translated into English as baptism is bapto, which means to dip or to dye. The term was used to describe the act of dipping a piece of cloth into dye to change its color, which would thereby change its identification. So the example would be you take a piece of white cloth and you dip it in red dye, and then when you pull it out, it's now a red piece of cloth, and so its identity was permanently changed. And so with baptism, there was that idea in the mind of everyone. There was, the, there was this identification that's going on. So the basic meaning then of the act of baptism is identification. You're identifying with a person and or a message and or a group. The, the more familiar Greek word used to baptize means to immerse. So the basic idea behind baptism then is identification. And the one who's being baptized identifies himself with a person and or a message and or a group. So those who were baptized by John identified themselves with his message and they prepared themselves to accept the Messiah. That's what it was for, repent of sin. And the idea was to be prepared to to receive the Messiah. Now, this idea of receiving the, the Messiah is then to be prepared to receive who he is because remember that when Jesus shows up, Jesus is not the Messiah that everybody's looking for. You know, they're, they're not looking for a humble servant who's coming to lay his life down. That's in the Old Testament, but what many were looking for was the Messiah who was coming to deliver them, a conqueror. And that is in the Bible, and the Bible talks about the Messiah coming to do that, and he will. Uh, they, what they all didn't grasp was that there's two comings. This is the first coming. So they're identifying themselves with a group that believes the Messiah is coming. They're repenting of their sins, and the idea is, I guess you would say, you repent of your sins to kind of take the blinders off so you can recognize the Messiah. The idea really being this, whomever John pointed out to be the Messiah, that would be the one they would believe in. So John's baptism was not the same as believer's baptism, while we get baptism. That is why those who were baptized by John, but they had left the country before John could point them to the Messiah, 
had to be rebaptized into the believer's baptism by Paul. Turn to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, I'll begin reading in verse 1, where we have some individuals who were baptized by John the baptizer. Apparently they left the country, they weren't there when John identified who the Messiah was. And we have this um, encounter here in Acts 19. Beginning in verse 1, it says, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, and there he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And so he said, Well, into what then were you baptized? And they said, John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So we have a group of, of believers, they, they believe in God. Paul comes along, they meet, he wants to know if they've received the Holy Spirit, and they go, they don't even know what he's talking about. Not that they've never heard the Holy Spirit like they've never heard that in their life, but this idea, you know, what do you mean, have, do we have the Holy Spirit? So he's, he's like, oh, well, wait a minute. So you're baptized. When did this happen? Who, who baptized you? It was John. So Paul clarifies it for us. Oh, John's baptism was what? A repentance, and you were going to believe in the one that was coming after him, and that's who John pointed out to. So he told him who Jesus was. They believe and they're baptized. He lays his hands on them and they're speaking in tongues, which again is confirmation that they were truly saved. At that time in the book of Acts, you see that taking place. Uh, one of the things that's important is every time we have the laying on of hands and someone is receiving the Holy Spirit, it's an apostle that's involved. There's that, that's an important detail uh, because of all of the, there's a lot of false teaching out there about when you get the Holy Spirit and whatnot. And, Acts is a book that deals with a lot of transition, and we need to recognize that. Um, and then those things would be clarified in the epistles. So that's what's happening there. Here at Ferguson, in a lot of Baptist churches, we practice what's called uh, believer's baptism. The one being baptized identifies with the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. That's what we're doing. You know, the, in fact, we talk about the, the symbolism of it. That, you know, when, you, when you're uh, put below the water, you are buried with Christ. Right, because I identify with Christ. When we're raised up out of the water, I'm now raised again like Christ. I'm identifying with the resurrection of Christ, and now I live a new life. Uh, and so it's a public uh, uh, proclamation and demonstration of that individual's faith in Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man who came and died for our sin and rose again. So the person being baptized again identifies with the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, the person of Jesus the message of his gospel, and we identify with his people or with his body, the church. All that's going on when we baptize. So before I move into why Jesus, uh, or, or, yeah, why Jesus was baptized, I do think we should ask a question. Why does it even matter? Right? We sit here in Georgia in 2023. Why do we need to know why Jesus was baptized? Why is that important? I mean, I guess it could be interesting history, but why? Well, let me tell you how things work. And if you think about it for just a moment, I think you'll realize this. And 
the advent of the internet really helps bring this home. Because you have a lot of clowns on the internet, but they don't dress as clowns. You know, it's kind of like false teachers, don't dress as false teachers. And the idea is you have somebody who comes on and you know when someone makes a, a presentation in a video, whether it's TikTok or whatever, it can sound really good and true. And so some guy gets on there, or girl, whatever, and they're making this video and they're very serious. They say they speak really well. And they say, you know, I've just discovered something about uh, Christianity. Did you know that Jesus was baptized and repented of his sins? You're like, well, wait a minute. Jesus was sinless. And this person goes, oh, no, no, no. John the Baptist was baptizing, and what was his message? Repent. Who needs to repent? Those who sinned. That's true. And they would say, so you see, Jesus went and asked John to baptize him. The only thing that makes sense is he was repenting of his sin. And then the person finishes their video. And just so you know, there are people out there who will be shaking their head going, hmm, never thought of that before. As if it was true. And the problem is, is they won't give it any more thought for the, for the next several months. And next thing you know, somehow, whatever they said begins to worm its way into their head. And there's just another little notch to begin to diminish the truth of what you know to be true about Scripture and about God. It's just that little thing. There's lots of little things like that out there all over the place. So you need, you need to know. I'm not saying you have to memorize all this stuff. But we need to at least be able to say, yeah, that's not true. There's much more going on there than just that. He's kind of, you know, it's kind of how they do with the news, right? You, know, they, you do know that the news is edited all the time. Whether you like what you're hearing or not, it's all being edited. Someone has to decide what they're going to tell you and what they're not going to tell you. That's just, that's how it is. Uh, and hopefully the person will be honest and doesn't have their own agenda. Seems most at least have an agenda. So uh, we, ha we, we take things, we, we use a phrase, we take it with a grain of salt. So, why was Jesus baptized? Think about it for just a moment. The baptism that Jesus underwent, it wasn't baptism as a proselyte. He was Jewish. He, he practiced Judaism. It wasn't believer's baptism. That hasn't even happened yet. It was John's baptism of repentance and the return to God. If that's what it was, let's just keep thinking about that. There was nothing for Jesus to repent of. When you read through the rest of all of Scripture, it becomes clear Jesus was sinless. So we know that God's word, at least we should know this, God, the Bible never contradicts itself. It never says something is A, and then over here, this is non-A. It doesn't do that. And so what appears to be, or what can appear to be a contradiction, probably isn't. In fact, I would say it's not. So we need to figure out what's going on here. So Jesus did not need to repent of anything. In fact, John recognized that. What did John say in verse 14? He tried to stop this and says, I need to be baptized by you. Why are you coming to me? And of course, Jesus tells him, just let it be. This is to fulfill righteousness. What does all that mean? Well, again, and then secondly, Jesus, this was not a repentance and return to God. Jesus didn't need to return to God. He is God. So, Something else is going on here. So there's, there's six things I want you to at least think about. Six theological reasons, if you would, as to why Jesus was baptized. Number one, 
as, as the scripture says in verse 15, his baptism was to fulfill all righteousness. As he says, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Righteousness, by definition, is consistently living with and perfectly conforming to an absolute standard. And the standard was the point of the Mosaic law. By being baptized, the Messiah identified himself with the righteousness of the law, showing that he would fulfill all of its righteous demands. We, we talk about Jesus living perfectly, obeying the law of God perfectly. We talk about him meeting the demands of the law on our behalf. He couldn't do that if he sinned. So he's identifying with the, the righteousness, not only the law, the righteousness that the law speaks about or points to. Number two, his baptism identified him with John's preaching that the people needed to prepare for the coming of the kingdom. So Jesus identified himself with the message. He's saying what John is saying is correct. You do need to prepare yourself for the coming of the kingdom. Number three, the baptism publicly identified him to Israel. Remember, he is a Jewish man. He was publicly authenticated as the Messiah, which is going to happen in a few minutes, which we've already read, that he's, he's the Messiah. This is the one John points to. This is the one John's been speaking about. This is the Messiah. He is whose Messiah? He is the Messiah of Israel. He's also our Messiah as well, but he is the Messiah of Israel. That's who he is. And so he's identifying himself with Israel. Whatever he's doing here in this baptism, because remember, John, there's a great deal of respect for John and, and what he's preaching. He, he's popular because of the respect. He's not popular because it's a show. He's popular because of the respect that people have for him and for his message. People are taking his message very seriously. They are believing the Messiah is coming soon. They, 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 they are ready for that. They, they, they want someone to point them to the Messiah. They are, they are ready to, to live in obedience to the Messiah, to follow the Messiah. So this is a big deal. So by identifying with John in this way and identifying himself with Israel, he's not being viewed as a renegade. He's not some outsider uh, that's outside of all of this. It's all within the confines of what God has given us through the Old Testament and what he's given us through Israel. And the fourth thing is this, is he was baptized to be identified with believers. Those who were the believing remnant of Israel in that day were responding to John's message and being baptized. That's why you know, we already mentioned this. The Sadducees, Pharisees, they weren't coming to be baptized. They were coming to see what was going on. They were not uh, the believing remnant. They were not responding to John's message. They were out there to criticize, to scrutinize what was going on. So Jesus is identifying himself with this group. Fifthly, his baptism identified him with sinners. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, let me read to you verses uh, 20 and 21. It says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He took upon himself the likeness of sinful flesh to be identified with sinners. Goes back to that idea that he did not need to repent of anything. So that's not why he was submitting to this baptism. There has to be other reasons. And here, verse 21 makes it clear. This was for our sake. God made him to be sin. He had to be a human being for this to happen. That's why he had to be the perfect God-man. 
And that's why we make such a big deal about the divinity of Christ, but also the humanity of Christ, and that he's fully human, so that he then could be our redeemer, so he could ransom us from the marketplace of sin, so he could save us from the punishment of sin. And then sixthly, at his baptism, he would receive a special anointing by the Holy Spirit. Let me read to you from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 37. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So when this is mentioned here, when they mention John and Jesus, John being this baptizer and this message that's named on purpose, because it's tying in with what he's just about to say. And what he's saying is, is it begins with John and the baptism of John, the message he proclaimed, and then what's the very next thing? How God, what, anointed Jesus. So this is a significant moment in time. Now let me tell you what that did not mean, because you know there's been this controversy, not so much now, although it's, it still exists, there are those who deny the humanity of Christ or those who deny the divinity of Christ. Like within the Muslim world, they deny that Christ was divine. You know, they will admit that he was a prophet, but they absolutely refuse to believe that he is God's son. And that, in fact, they'll tell you point blank, he's not God's son. Uh, there was a form of teaching in, the, in Gnosticism where they were, as they were trying to deal with all of this, that people would say, well, Jesus was a man, and then at his baptism, that's when he received the Holy Spirit, and he was, in a sense, the divine man. And then just at some time, just before his crucifixion, his divinity left. Because, you know, they're, they're saying, well, God can't die, and they go, you know, all these gymnastics trying to figure all this out. And that's what they came up with, which is heretical. Uh, but here it's making it clear that that's not when he became divine. He is the son of God, but he, as a man, he was anointed by the Holy Spirit and empowered by the Holy Spirit. As Jesus went around performing his miracles, he was doing by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's living as a man, dependent upon God. That is why, as we mentioned before, and we'll cover it again in Matthew, uh, but when it comes to the unpardonable sin, that's only mentioned a few times in Scripture, and it's only mentioned by Jesus. No one else ever talks about it. And each time he talks about it, it's always after, um, there's two different miracles that take place, but it's the exact same miracle, and that is the casting out of a, a demon from a man who cannot speak. And so when that happens, people immediately begin to ask the question, could this be the son of David? They're asking that on purpose. Son of David is a title for Messiah. Could this be, is this the Messiah? And they're asking that because they've been taught in their theology that there are certain things, certain miracles that the Messiah would do proving he was the Messiah. And so when he does that, you know, the, the Pharisees are there and they've already determined they don't like Jesus. They want him gone. And so he performs this miracle by casting out this demon from an individual who cannot speak. And so therefore they ask the question, and the first time it's asked, the Pharisees respond, and they say, oh, no, 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 that he's not the Messiah. And of course, that, at that point in time, they now have to say, then how can he do this miracle? And what do they say? He's basically possessed by Beelzebub. He's demon-possessed. And so they were denying the work and power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus, and attributing it to the power of Satan. And that is the unpardonable sin. Uh, that's when Jesus mentions that and begins to expound on that for a little while. So 
Jesus, again, as he lives his life, is living in dependence upon God the Holy Spirit, who empowers him to do these miracles, all in perfect uh, coordination uh, and working together um, as the triune God. So the other thing that's obviously significant that takes place here is we have the appearance of the triune God, both visibly and audibly. Verse 16, it says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So God the Son was present in the person of Christ. We know that. We know, we know the claims about him. We know what John has even said about him so far. And he, obviously, he's there because he's the one being baptized. Number two, God the Spirit appears in the form of a dove that came upon Jesus. So we could ask the question, so why a dove? Why is that happening? So I've, I found this in a couple of, of uh, um, uh, Jewish commentaries, one a newer one, which pointed to an older one. Uh, and this is the argument that is made, which I think actually makes a lot of sense. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So in whatever translation you have, it may use the word hovering, it may be moving, um, but the Hebrew word that's used there, which I'm not going to pronounce, uh, is a word that is used of a mother bird that is hovering over her eggs just before they hatch. That's the word that's used. So in an old rabbinic commentary on Genesis, remember just because it's old and it's rabbinic doesn't mean it's wrong. In an old rabbinic commentary, it says that the spirit brooding over the waters was like a dove. Now that's not scripture, but that was the tradition. The tradition that they, most of them had was it's the Holy Spirit that symbolizes, uh, I mean the dove that symbolizes the Holy Spirit. In fact, we've kind of adopted that. You know, it was a real big deal back in the 70s and 80s that if you get a Bible cover uh, with some kind of symbol on it, it would either be a cross or a dove. And it was, you know, why the dove? Well, it's, it's the Holy Spirit. Did we, you know, we, everyone just kind of embraced that. Partly because of what we have here in Matthew, that's a dove, uh, but the people that are there would recognize that. They wouldn't be thinking that's something else. They would recognize that as the Holy Spirit based on their understanding of Genesis chapter 1. So I would say with that, it's one of those areas where God was not required to do that, but he did that. Just like Jesus was not, you know, what, what I call the messianic miracles, Jesus wasn't required by scripture to do the messianic miracles. It is interesting, he did each of those twice. And he did it for the sake of the people. So they would know who he was. Here, there's this immediate recognition of what's going on here. Jesus comes out of the water. They see this dove descending. Uh, and of course, they hear the voice from heaven, which kind of seals the deal. Uh, this is kind of a the supernatural thing that's happening. But they would have immediately made that connection to the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, God the Father is present. And his presence is made known audibly. Because it says, behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So in, again, in rabbinic theology, they believe that one of the ways that God communicated with the prophets was through the bath uh, kol, which means daughter of a voice or an echo. They also believe that this, was, this voice ceased with Malachi. And we do know that the prophetic voice stopped 
but the voice of God did not. And periodically, God spoke a short sentence out of heaven, and this would be one of them. So they, they, hear, this, they hear this voice. Um, probably was not in English. They weren't speaking English there. So it's Hebrew or Aramaic, but that's, you know, God speaks so they can understand. Uh, and so, but that's what, that's what was uttered from heaven. So at the baptism, God speaks and identifies Jesus as the Son. Again, they would have recognized Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. So again, in Jesus' life, I just want you to understand there's, there's, this, there's a great deal of continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And too often we keep thinking that the Old Testament is somehow different and maybe disconnected from the New Testament. It's not. There's the great, it's like this, hand and glove. And so, and, and God is doing that on purpose. He's not doing it to be clever, right? Going from the very beginning, there's this unified message uh, and, the, and the unified work of God that God does from Genesis all the way to Revelation. It's, it's not, you know, sporadic and let's try this. and let's, It's not where let's just throw some paint against the wall and see what sticks. All right, the idea here is, is all of this is, it works together perfectly, logically, rationally, really, culturally, in every way. All these things come together. Uh, and, and there have been many individuals who, being unfamiliar with the Bible, being challenged by the message of Christ, have read the Bible, and have come out saying that they were astounded, really, at the unity of the Scripture. It's hard. You know, I've always kind of wanted to know how does an unbeliever like that, when they read the scripture, what are they, what are they seeing? Because I became a believer when I was 10. Now, I've, I've not obviously lived this perfect life, but I've read the Bible most of my life as a believer. So I'm not reading it as a non-believer. So I, I'm, no, I, I'm not seeing it the way they see it. So I've always been interested in how they view it. What, what is this individual saying? And there are certain things that, that they say, and that's one of them. Whether that individual is, is a PhD or whatever, these individuals who can think, male or female, they come away talking about the unity. I just think it's amazing they see that. And they pick up on it right away. And, and, in fact, they, and, they'll, and, they, and they just, and that, because of how the Bible was produced and all the number of years involved and all these different writers, and you know, we talk about the Holy Spirit kind of superseding the process to make sure that we have the Word of God and it's preserved for us, which is, which is a great study. These individuals are recognizing that when they just read that. And I, I think it's a testimony, obviously, to God, another witness to the truthfulness of the Word of God, and it's just terrific to hear these individuals say that um, and to see that kind of brought out in, in their conversion to Christ. As we hear in Isaiah, again, because many of these individuals had a great deal of the Old Testament memorized, they're, they're making these connections. In the same way that if, as you continue to read the Word of God, if you've been reading the Word of God at least on a semi-regular basis for 10, 12, 15 years, when you hear someone either doing a Bible study or preaching a sermon, and they, they may not even make reference to that, but you're automatically making certain connections, which are probably correct. You're seeing how these things more and more fit together. You're just now recognizing them. And that's because you're becoming more familiar with the Word of God. And then as you hear other things explained, you go, oh, okay, that makes sense. Oh, yeah, I, there you go. Oh, yeah, now I, now I know better, or whatever it happens to be. 
And that's kind of what was going on with these individuals when they're looking at this man who comes up out of the water after being baptized by John the Baptist, seeing this dove descend, hearing this audible voice. These individuals, I'm, I'm thinking they're kind of doing this. Yep, that's the Messiah. I mean, it's, just, it's kind of clear. That's who he is. That's the Messiah. Which to me, again, adds greater strength to this idea that when it comes to the rejection of Jesus by the nation of Israel, that again, it was not a rejection out of ignorance. It was a willful rejection. Just like the Bible makes it clear when it comes to you and I. Romans 1 makes it clear. Every single person knows that God does exist. They know that. They know it. So when the individual lives their life rejecting this idea of God or belief in God, that's not ignorance. That is willful. And, and we know we're often dishonest with ourselves. Nobody wants to to say that. We want to maybe pretend that we're humble. Say, well, I'm not really sure there is a God, so I call myself an agnostic. Call yourself an agnostic, call yourself an atheist. You're being dishonest with yourself. You know that God exists and you're suppressing the truth. Now, we don't always say it that way to that individual because they just want to argue or fight. All right? But when you're talking to someone, you know, you, you, you know, you know that individual knows that God exists. You know that. And they're lying to you and lying to themselves if they want to pretend that they don't know. Which, which, brings about, if you think about it, from a moment, a greater degree of accountability to God. Just like, I don't know if you've ever done this, but when I was raising my kids, and, and they would get in trouble collectively, the oldest was always in more trouble than the younger. Because the assumption on my part is, he knows better. He's lived longer, he has more life experience. Yes, he's only 11, but he has more life experience than the five-year-old. So they're all in trouble, especially him, right? We, there's that expectation. There's greater accountability. Same idea when it comes to, to us. So again, remember that when it comes to what we're presenting about Christ, remember this. Jesus is the Messianic Son. He is God the Son. In fact, there's three times in the ministry of Jesus where God the Father speaks audibly out of heaven. This is the first of those. And now his public ministry is going to begin. What's important for us as individuals here is for those of us who are believers in Christ, we recognize again, uh, not just the fluidity in the life of Jesus, but again, the consistency and the continuity with the revelation of God from the Old Testament to the New and into the life of Christ. We, we, re we see maybe more readily or it's reinforced to us the divinity of Jesus, his holiness, his righteousness, his purpose for coming. You may be sitting here, and even though you come to church, you may not have committed your life to Christ. You are an individual, for whatever the reason, you've, you've not trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. What you need to know is, as we go through these things, I think it continually becomes clear that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. That it is clear that, the, that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. It continues to be proven over and over and over again in so many different ways. And the bottom line is, is that here... Um, we have proof. And some say, well, it's not proof, it's just written in a, in a, in a book. Well, you know that that's how most things are known. And remember what, what uh, Lazarus uh, was told by Abraham when, I mean, not Lazarus, but the rich man, when the rich man asked if Lazarus could be sent back from the dead to tell his brothers so they wouldn't come there. And what did Abraham say? No. Nah. They have Moses and the prophets. And then he makes this connection. He says, if they won't believe Moses and the prophets, 
then they also won't believe even if someone returns from the dead. Now, you do know the most famous person to return from the dead. That'd be Jesus. People, if they will not believe the revelation of Moses and the prophets, coming back from the dead is not going to convince them either. Because sin blinds the heart. And so if you don't know Christ, my prayer for you and others are praying for you is that God will open your eyes to see the truth of the word of God and to see that you are separated from him and that Christ was not just a good and perfect man to be a good example, though he is a good example, but he came for a very specific purpose. And that's what we read in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He who made him who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. He placed on him our sin and he was punished so that our sins would be punished and judged so that we could escape that by placing our faith in Christ. And I would encourage you to seriously consider that. And no one here wants you to do that just because someone else has. No one here wants you to do that just because it might be popular for the moment. We want you to do that because you're convinced it's the truth. And if you have questions, we want you to ask those questions. You can ask me. There's many in the church you can ask. And if nothing else, even the person you ask, if they don't know the answer, they will help find the answer for you. We want you to, in a sense, come to Jesus with your eyes wide open and recognize the reasons for our faith in him and why we commit ourselves to Christ, trust him and love him for all that he's done for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your goodness to us and again for the life of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you have left no stone unturned, that in every single detail in the life of Christ, Lord, matches up with your revelation, with your purpose, with the righteousness that is being portrayed before us. And for that, we are grateful. We pray, Father, for those who know you, that, Father, you will continue to fill us with great confidence in what it is that we believe. And we thank you, Lord, for the confidence it brings and for the clarity. And, Father, for those who do not know Christ, we pray Lord, that your spirit would convict them of their sin and separation from you. Convict them of the reality of the coming judgment and of the righteousness of Christ and that they would believe and trust in him. Father, as always, we ask that you would continue to burn these things deep into our hearts and minds as we're bringing our time here to a close. We thank you and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.